0: Why do we sing for joy, particularly around Christmas? We started out with a song entitled Joy to the World. The Christmas season is said to be a time of joy, happiness, and cheer. We gather together with family. We buy and receive gifts. We have time off work. That's always pretty sweet. Why is it said to be a time of joy? The season of Christmas doesn't change your circumstances. Some struggle with the stress of their job all year long. Some struggle with the stress of broken relationships all year long. Some struggle with the stress of sickness, and at times sickness that leads to death all year long. To that end, some of us have suffered losses throughout the year that are punctuated around the holidays. We're reminded of that family member or friend, that parent or child. We're reminded of the loss of their presence and their influence in our lives, especially around the holidays. are we to simply drop all of that and be joyful? At the heart of Christianity is the belief that this world is broken. Yes, there are many aspects of the planet that is broken, so many lament things like global warming and its effect around the world, but it's more than that. More specifically, at the heart of Christianity is the belief that the world of humanity is broken. Our view of ourselves is broken. Our view of one another is broken. Relationships between people are broken. Even our relationship with work, our occupation, the work of our hands is broken. So many lament Monday mornings and can't wait to get to the weekend. We believe that the world of humanity is broken because of our relationship with our creator. Because that is also broken. The first humans rejected the rule of our creator over them and everyone born after them followed along the same. Even those who profess faith in him follow him imperfectly. Furthermore, we understand that since our relationship with him is broken, yes, it affects our relationship with one another and our view of ourselves, but there's also an eternal consequence to that. I mean, reason itself teaches this. If you were to walk up to your neighbor and punch them, you would rightly evoke the wrath of your neighbor. It may even lead to some civil court proceedings. But if you were to walk up to the President of the United States and somehow find a way to get past the Secret Service and close enough to punch him, there would be a different set of consequences. And that's only natural, right? Because the office of the President of the United States deserves more honor than the office of your neighbor. Now measure the honor due to a human office, even the likes of the President of the United States, against the honor due to the eternal and sovereign ruler of the universe. I mean, there really is no comparison. The honor due to him is an eternal honor because he holds his office eternally, because the worth and value of his person is eternal. And just as we would rightly expect judgment from offending a human who holds an office that demands honor, we should rightly expect judgment from the sovereign and eternal ruler over all. Those who claim that God does not and should not judge humanity are not being intellectually honest with themselves. Thus, we do deserve an eternal consequence for offending an eternal sovereign ruler. This all leaves us in an utterly helpless state. Our relationship with the sovereign ruler of the universe is broken causes us to have broken relationships with one another, with the world, and ultimately it leads to a greater and eternal consequence. So I ask again, where is the joy in that? How do we turn all that off? How do we ignore all the sorrow and difficulty that is the reality of the life in which we live? Well, the Christian is not exempt from these things. The Christian does not ignore these things. To the contrary, the Christian feels the weight of the burdens of life, just as anyone else, perhaps even more so. The difference for the Christian is that we're not relying on our own strength. We're relying on the strength of God. We wait on the Lord because he has proven in no uncertain terms as a result of the advent of Christ, the coming of Jesus That he desires a relationship with us. He desires to know us. He desires for us to know him. He desires to save us from our suffering, and much more, he desires to strengthen us to endure. Those who believe that can have true joy. Well, this morning I want to take a look at a passage. This is not typically thought of as a Christmas message passage. My goal is not to preach a Christmas message this morning, but rather to preach to you from the word of God for your encouragement and your joy. Because again, sometimes life is hard and therefore joy is hard. And for that reason, approaching a season that is supposed to be characterized by joy for some can be a source of greater distress and encouragement when it really doesn't have to be if we're truly waiting on the Lord. If you haven't, turned with me to Isaiah chapter 40. This is a passage that many are familiar with Isaiah's exhortation in this passage is a reminder to us of why we, as his people are called to wait on the Lord in seasons of distress. And I ultimately want to encourage you to find joy, not in the season, but rather again, to quote a rather cheesy saying to find joy in the reason for the season. This morning, for the sake of time, I'm going to read for you verses 25 through 31, and that's where we're going to focus. The whole of chapter 40 is a beautiful passage, and I would commend that to you for reading at some other point, but we'll read verses 25 through 31 and focus in on that text for this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. "'Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, "'he who brings out their host by number, "'calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, "'and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. "'Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? "'My way is hidden from the Lord, "'and my right is disregarded by my God. "'Have you not known? "'Have you not heard? The everlasting, "'The Lord is the everlasting God, "'the creator of the ends of the earth.'" Pray with me. Father, again, as we come before you, we come before your word. Even as Jesus prayed, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. On this text, we're called to wait on the Lord. Specifically, Isaiah exhorts us to remember three things as we wait on the Lord. First, we are to remember that God does see us in our trials, as in verses 25 through 27. Second, that God is sovereign over all things, in verses 28 through 29. And third, that God will supply the strength we need, in verses 30 and 31. God does see us in our trials. He is sovereign over all things, And he will supply the strength we need. Just by way of brief background and context, Isaiah is the author of the text. He prophesied during the reigns of four kings of Judah. The duration of Isaiah's prophetic ministry saw a steady drifting of the nation away from dependence on the Lord to dependence on themselves and even seeking to trust in some of the nations around them as things began to grow difficult for them. Isaiah, as many prophets, often walked the line between preaching messages of judgment and messages of comfort. In the first half of the book, God was constantly sending messages of judgment to remind the people that he is their God and there is no other. He reminded them that fidelity to his covenant with them or exile from the promised land were the only two options. There were also a number of messages of hope spread throughout that first half these were exhortations to trust in him and not men to look to him for salvation to look to him for comfort the final prophetic word of chapter 39 was a clear indication that due to their sin their lack of fidelity to his covenant with them their people were headed for judgment chapter 40 marks a turning point in the book from what was a straightforward narrative discourse between isaiah and then king hezekiah to a number of prophetic messages of comfort for god's people Some have said that this is Isaiah addressing the people of his day in the midst of impending judgment and the turmoil of war with surrounding nations. Others say that he's prophetically addressing the concerns of the nation in the future as they're carried off into Babylonian captivity. Regardless, the point is the same. At this point, Isaiah is seeking to deliver a message of comfort to the people of God in the midst of great trial and distress. He's calling them to remember their God, remember who he is, and to wait on him, to trust in him for his salvation. Let's look at the first point of the text. As we wait for the Lord, we must remember first that God does see us in our trials. Look again at verses 25 through 27. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these, the one who leads forth their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. At the heart of just about every inquiry, that comes from the lips of someone in the midst of some great trial, some great turning point in their lives where they're made to experience a new normal thereafter. At the heart of just about every cry is the basic question, why? Why this? Why now? Why me? Those who are without any knowledge of God in the world will automatically turn to explanations of bad luck or unaligned stars or even the, they lack, even though they lack the worldview category of absolute good, they will point to some form of external evil or influence as a culprit. Those of us who know the Lord understand that he is sovereign even over our sufferings and does at time have his purposes for our suffering, but the question still remains, why this kind of suffering? I think that deep in our hearts, we know that even if we knew the reason why, it wouldn't satisfy us because often what we're really communicating when we ask the question why is that we do not believe that this thing should happen to me. I don't deserve this. I'm better than this. Maybe somehow God has made a mistake. I mean, clearly he doesn't know me, right? If he knew me, this wouldn't be happening to me. He would have picked somebody else. Maybe he's just forgotten about me, just like everyone else who doesn't care. This is the issue that Isaiah is addressing. Look again at the text. I want you to look at verse 27 first, and then we'll get back to 25 through 26. Again, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Do you hear the complaint? My way is hidden from the Lord. As I said, this is in the context of trial, trouble, distress. The implication is that God simply doesn't see what's happening to me. He doesn't understand. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. The term right there has to do with judgment. You imagine a courtroom setting, the cases have been argued, and the verdict is set to be given by the judge. The verdict given by the judge is the binding judgment. This is what's going to result in the conclusion of the courtroom hearing. In this case, the people of God are accusing God of disregarding proper judgment, right judgment, in the final analysis. Clearly, my way is hidden from him, because if it were not, justice would have been brought already. What is due to me, my right, the proper judgment concerning my cause, would have already been executed if the Lord knew me. We may not actually say this, but this is often how we feel. How could he let this happen to me? Why hasn't he fixed it yet? When we pray, we pray, God, fix it now, because I shouldn't have to go through this. if you really knew me if you really knew what was going on with me you'd know that this is not right for me the death of a loved one difficulty in marriage difficulty in parenting difficulty on the job the loss of a job conflicts with neighbors or perhaps people in the church chronic illness or sudden illness for you or a loved one some other form of uncertainty in life God do do you even see what's happening right now in my life? Well, again, what was Isaiah's response? His response was to remind them of who God is. Look again at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. You see what he does there? He says, to whom will you compare me? I think the flavor of this really is you don't know who you're dealing with, do you? It's more like, do you, do you actually know who I am? Do you know who you're talking to right now? This is God's response. Take a step back and look for me for just a second at the beginning of chapter 40. His desire to offer words of comfort, that's what he leads with in this chapter. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Well, how does he comfort them? He reminds them that their sins have been paid for in verse two. He reminds him that no matter what is happening in the world, that the Lord will have his final word, that his glory shall be revealed. Verse five says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the word of God endures forever. Whatever God has said is going to happen is going to happen. You can count on that. That's the point. And then the rest of the chapter, he just talks about who God is. In verse 9, he even says, Behold your God. This is what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to remember about who God is. The Lord comes with might. He says, The Lord will shepherd his people. He will tend his flock. He will gather his lambs. He will carry them in his bosom. He says that he's greater than all the nations of the earth in verses 12 through 17. And then he says again, To whom then will you liken God? He's greater than the idols of the earth. He's greater than even the rulers of the earth, as he continues. In chapter 40, and then again, he asked the question, to whom then will you compare me? Again, this is the one who has satisfied his wrath concerning your sin, the one whose word abides forever, the one who has promised to spread his glory throughout the earth, the one who comes in power, the one who's promised to care for his people as a shepherd cares for his sheep, the one who's greater than both idol and earthly ruler. To whom will you compare the Lord, our God? The Lord is constantly challenging his people on this level. He says, I am the holy one. This speaks of his uniqueness, his otherness, his separateness. There is no one like him. I want to ask you, to whom do you compare the Lord? A.W. Tozer said that if we conceive of God in any way other than how he's revealed himself, that is idolatry. We tend to laugh and scoff at those who came before and we read about the idolatry, even what Isaiah mentions here, that there are some who they'll go. If they have enough money, they'll get gold or silver and they'll take it to a craftsman and they'll get him to make them an idol. If they don't have enough money, they just look for a piece of wood that's not going to rot and they get him to craft something. And we think, how in the world could they do that? But you know what? You and I do that every single day. We make idols in our own minds about who God is. So we don't think about him rightly. It's so easy to do, especially when we believe that he's not giving to us what is due to us in life. It's so easy to think of God as simply being angry with us. That's why things are bad, because we sinned and he's just angry. Or he's just being passive or indifferent, unresponsive to us. Maybe he's impotent. He's not able to fix this particular issue. Or else he's just unjust. Again, the right that is due me has escaped his notice to whom then will you liken the Lord our God? If you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for. The word of the Lord still endures forever. His glory shall be revealed. The Lord still has all power. He is still the good shepherd. To whom then do you compare the Lord? Back in our text, just in case they needed more evidence, in verse 26, he says this, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Well, what are the these? The these are referring to the stars in the heavens. He says, I'm the reason that there are stars in the sky. I have established their host by number. I call them all by name and by my might, by my strong power, I uphold each and every one of them. Can you count the stars? Has anyone ever been able to count all the stars in the sky? Has anyone cataloged all of them by name? Does anyone even know how they operate, each one of them? Can anyone fix their power, uphold their power, sustain their power? The Lord does. Isaiah is reasoning here from what is greater to what is lesser. If God is able to create, to name, and to sustain each and every one of those burning balls of gas in the sky, then certainly he's able to see you. He's able to uphold you. He's able to keep you. God has been known as the God who sees for many generations. One of the clearest illustrations of this is from the life of Abraham. You remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 2 when he was commanded to take Isaac up to the, to the mountain and to sacrifice him. The child of promise. The child of his deepest love. As they were walking up, you remember Isaac says, to his, Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaac says to his father, Father, we have everything, but we need a sacrifice. And Abraham literally responded, God will see to it. And afterward, as the Lord provided the sacrifice of a ram caught in a thicket to be used in the place of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham named that place, the Lord will see to it. Or again, the Lord will provide. That idea of provision is connected with the reality that God sees what our need is. And not only sees in a passive sense, but that he is actively involved in providing for our need. That's the point. We have a similar expression when we say we're going to get something done. We say what? I'll see to it. That's the idea here for the Lord. He is the God who sees. He is the God who provides. When I read verse 27, again, I sense that Isaiah is almost incredulous, knowing that this is who God is. Why do you say, Jacob, and why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? How can you even say that knowing who the Lord is? Lift up your eyes and see. In other words, get your head out of the sand. Lift up your eyes and you see you're accusing God of not seeing you, but you're not looking at who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. Have you considered the greatness of your God? This truth is what Israel needed to be reminded of. And this is a truth that really we need to be reminded of when we go through difficulty in our lives. Listen, feelings are important. Feelings are significant. Feelings are a part of what it means to be human, even a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But your feelings do not define you. And if your feelings do not define you, they certainly don't define God. It doesn't matter how you feel in the midst of whatever difficulty you're encountering right now. You need to know what is true. You need to know the truth of who God is. He is the God who sees. He is the God who provides. That is never going to change about him. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter how difficult life is for you. As we're we're called to wait on the Lord, we're called to remember that he does indeed see and he does indeed provide. Second, we're called to remember that God is sovereign over all things. And this is connected to what was said already. But look at verses 28 and 29. Have you not heard? Have you not known? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And you know how you're in the middle of a fierce debate with someone and they've just made a really good point and you know they got you beat and they know they got you beat, but they just keep going. And they keep kind of digging in and the next point that they make is even better than the previous point, And you start feeling bad and you want to just walk away, but they don't let you. That's what Isaiah is doing here. He's going in on them and he's not letting up. He's not letting up here because he's identified part of the issue. And a large part of the issue for Israel in their day and really a large part of the issue for us is that sometimes we just forget who God is. We forget that He is the sovereign God. He has rule over all things, including our lives. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of getting swirled up in all the holiday seasonal festivities with all the business and stressness of it, we completely forget who we're celebrating. Listen again to Isaiah's response Have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, where have you all been? Have you been living under a rock all this time? Do you not know who the Lord is? Well, let me remind you. And he gives them four aspects of God's sovereignty. God is everlasting. In the text, Isaiah calls him the Lord, the everlasting God. This is another great theme to study in the book of Isaiah, even throughout all of scripture. God makes bold statements such as chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last And there is no God besides me who is like me. Let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order. Now, who gets to say that? If a human being were to say that there is no one like me, we would think either they're insane or just drunk with pride. But God can say that because it's true. There is no one like him. He is the true and living God. There is no other God. You and I need to be confident in that truth and speak it unapologetically. The people of God have confessed this for generations. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Listen, if God is everlasting, and first of all, he's seen it all, right? There's certainly nothing new under the sun for him. And furthermore, he is hindered by nothing. There is no thing, no issue too great for him to handle. Nothing has thwarted him yet, and nothing ever, ever will. He is the everlasting God. God is also creator. Nothing comes from nothing, right? Right? Something had to be here in the beginning in order for there to be anything now. If there was nothing in the beginning, there would be nothing here now. Uh, I hope we all understand that, right? Like when they try to talk about the Big Bang and say that scientific proof when it's really just a foolish theory, it's illogical to conceive of there being absolutely nothing in the beginning and then something coming from nothing without any external action. But so the reality is that there was something before there was anything. And that something was the everlasting God. He is the uncaused cause. He is the one through whom all things came into being. Look back at verse 12. He asked the question who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance. The answer is no one but the Lord. He is our creator God. We studied Psalm 139 last week. We were reminded that because he is our creator, that he knows us intimately and thoroughly because he made us. And the reality is that because he made us, he knows precisely what we need and when we need it, and he knows for how long we need it, and that includes our joys and our sorrows. Truth be told, it's much easier to accept the sovereign control of God over our lives when things are going well we love to talk about how God has blessed us when things are going well. But then we completely leave God out of the picture when things are not going so well. When we're going through trials. It's, it's, like, it's almost like we, we, we flip a switch and we completely disregard God. We remove him from the equation when things are hard. What did Job say when his wife tempted him to curse God and die? <coughs> Job said, shall we indeed accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? Job acknowledged the sovereignty of God over all things. And I say to you, shall we in one breath sing songs like, oh, worship the king all glorious above and gratefully sing his wonderfully love when we're enthralled in worship and turn around with another breath to accuse the same God of failing to give us what we deserve when difficulty comes? Shall we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? He is sovereign over all. Back in our text, he is everlasting. He is creator. He is all wise. Isaiah says he does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What does he mean by that? Well, he's encouraging his people to reflect upon what they know about the character of God. And this reflection is intended to give them encouragement. Again, this is a poetic line. The second half of the line informs the first. The emphasis is on the understanding of God. He says he does not faint or grow weary in what way his understanding is unsearchable again the focus is on the understanding of God the depth of his knowledge his ability to perceive the end from the beginning his ability to know what needs to be done in this situation or that the people have accused God at least in their minds of not knowing what was due to them remember that's the word that was used earlier in verse 27 the right is my right is disregarded by my God the term right emphasizes again proper judgment favorable judgment here, Isaiah says plainly, God has not missed the mark. God has not overlooked proper judgment. God has certainly viewed your case correctly. He sees you, and listen, he knows precisely what you need when you need it because his understanding of all things is unsearchable. He knows what you need, and if you have it, that means that he knows you need that, whatever the, that is. Sometimes my wife asks me to find something in her purse, and I just hand it back to her. Cause her purse is unsearchable to me. Like, I don't even know like how she keeps all the stuff in there that she keeps. Right. It's like, I can't find anything. That's the idea of unsearchable. I'm only kidding. The wisdom of God is unsearchable. It means that it cannot be found out. There's no limit to it. There's no bottom. There are no sides. There's no end to his understanding. In other words, To the point of his passage, your trials and difficulties do not mean that his understanding has failed. His understanding cannot fail. His understanding of what you need cannot fail. It will not fail. It has not worn out. The fact that we are in distress at this moment does not mean that he has grown tired of executing sound judgment for us. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The fact that you have been given this difficulty at this time in your life, this question mark, this thorn in the flesh means that the all wise God, the one whose understanding is unfathomable, it means that it is his sovereign wisdom. He has decided to give this to you. It's not accidental. Whatever it is, for however long it is, however difficult it is. The one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11, has entrusted this trial to you. We remember that he has done this for our good, right? Romans 8.28. He work causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. He has done this for our sanctification and maturity in the faith, James 1, 2 through 4. James says, why do trials come? They come so that we might be perfect and mature, lacking in nothing. He's done this ultimately for his glory. John 9, when the disciples asked why the man was born blind, it wasn't because of his sin. It was so that the glory of God would be made known through him. Back to the text. Not even the nations of the earth can thwart his purposes. Verses 23 through 24. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. He causes nations and national leaders to rise and fall in accord with the sovereign purposes in the world. I think this is a good reminder for us as we consider the plethora of tragedies in the world at large, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Hamas, or the United States and its many enemies. All things will continue to work according to his purpose. He is in control of all of those things. Moving on again, God is the everlasting God. He is the creator. He is all wise and he is gracious. Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. This is something that God does as a result of who he is. God is a giver. He gives to those who are in desperate need. Those who are weak and in need of strength, he gives strength. Grace and compassion often go together. Compassion sees someone in need and has pity on them. Grace kicks in to provide for that need. In Exodus 34, after Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, the Lord hid Moses in a cleft of a rock, passed before him, and proclaimed his glory. He said, if you want to know my glory, this is what my glory is. This is who I am. I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is what God said about himself. This is my glory, he says. And the people of God have continued to meditate on that truth Throughout the history of his people, Isaiah is calling upon his people to remember this about God. God is gracious. He is a giver. This is the truth we must hold on to, especially in times of trouble. The fact of God's graciousness that he is able and willing to help those who are weak really should be evident to all who know him. Again, we reason from what is greater in difficulty to what is less. In just a few chapters, Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah will speak of another gift of grace that God gives you will speak of the gift of the suffering servant. This gift, this servant, this man will be given in order to see that the greatest need of his people is satisfied. And the greatest need of his people is that their transgressions, their iniquities be healed. Their waywardness as sheep who go astray from the good shepherd receive pardon. Peter in first Peter chapter two identifies his suffering servant as the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that by his wounds we are now healed. We celebrate the gift of the grace of God during Christmas season. Acknowledging that God sent his son into the world for this very purpose. Earlier we spoke of the brokenness of humanity. It is the graciousness of God that has moved him to fix our brokenness in the most intimate of ways. I want to just chewing this for a minute we have in jesus a savior who is not some aloof god who sits up in a mountain on high and sends out gifts to the peasants subjects once per year but one who condescended one who came down to be like us in order that he might redeem us the everlasting god the sovereign ruler of the universe the all-wise god humbled himself to take on human form as it says in philippians 2 and do you know what that means That means, to steal a phrase from a popularly evangelistic movement, that means that he gets us. Have you considered that in the text in Isaiah 53, it's prophesied that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? (coughs) Do you remember that he knew what it was like to be ostracized from society because many speculated that he was an illegitimate child of Mary? Do you remember that he was born in a manger, laid in a feeding trough? That means that he knows what it's like to be poor, to be without. Do you remember that his earthly father was not spoken of during his adult ministry, meaning that he knows what it's like to lose a loved one? Do you realize that as the eldest son, it would have been his responsibility to care for the family and especially his mother, which is why we frequently see them together. He knew what it was like to have those kinds of responsibilities in life. Do you realize that he knew what it was like to have societal expectations that he could not fulfill whether it was to take up the family business after the death of his father or once it was clear that he was a teacher to live in the way that other teachers in his day did. You know that Jesus knew what it was like to be wrongly accused. Jesus knew what it was like to be misunderstood by people. Jesus knew what it was like to have his friends betray him. Jesus knew what it was like to have his friends abandon him. Listen, he knew what it was like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because in reality, he walked through that valley all of his life. Jesus, the one who was given to you, given for you, for your salvation, knows what it's like to be you. That's the kind of gift that God has given in his grace. If he has so met this great need, the need for your forgiveness, for your pardon, the need to have a God who knows how to relate to you. If he has so met this need by not sparing his own son, what need would he withhold from you today? Oh, this last phrase, and I'll try to move through this one quickly. Again, as we're reminded, we're encouraged to wait on this Lord. The Lord in this passage, we're reminded that our God is a God who sees and endeavors to provide for us. We're reminded that he is a God who is sovereign and his grace has met our greatest need already. Finally, we're reminded That our God will supply what we need for today. Verses 30 and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah starts with the negative first. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous, young men stumble badly. He says, this is not the way to go. The idea of the youth and the vigorous young men is meant to envision the strength of a society. The youths were perceived to be the strongest in the society. They were the ones who would have been selected to go into battle to fight for the people. And yet even they suffer weariness. Even they are tired and even they eventually stumble. You will not find the answer to your problem by relying on the strength of men. We started with the negative, but here's the positive. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, he says here, they who wait on the Lord. What does that mean? Isaiah is making a contrast here, and you have to understand that. There are those who, when in need, do not wait on the Lord. They do not trust him, and thus they complain about a lack of justice for themselves. They doubt his ability to help. They perhaps turn to mankind for strength instead of the Lord. To the contrary, waiting on the Lord involves seeing your need, trusting that he sees and understands your need, seeing and trusting his ability to make that need, his unique ability as a sovereign, everlasting, all wise, gracious God, and then seeking him for strength. To wait on the Lord is to deliberately, wholeheartedly, and persistently seek the sovereign, eternal, all wise, and gracious God for strength. That's what it means. It's trusting that he is who he said he is and looking to his hand to provide what you need. What are you waiting for today, Christian? What trouble do you face today? What need do you have? What are you waiting on the Lord for? And does this describe the way you are waiting on him? Deliberately, wholeheartedly, persistently seeking him. The sovereign, eternal, all-wise and gracious God. Seeking him for strength. Does that describe how you are waiting today? Now, Isaiah doesn't really tell us what it means to wait specifically, but I think that there are three ways that we can show our deliberate, wholehearted, persistent waiting. The first is by staying close to his word. And I think about Psalm one, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But as the light is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. You have your heart and your mind set and focused on the word of God. And he says that as you meditate on the word of God day and night, you'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water. Who brings forth his fruit. Thank you, Marianne. Who brings forth his fruit in his season whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. You ever feel like your leaf is withering? That passage promises that if you keep your mind on his word, saturated by his word, that your leaf will never wither and that what you do will prosper. That's what God's word says. I'm not making that up. This is not prosperity gospel. This is the truth of God's word. Isaiah said, He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Why? Because he trusts in him. Because the Lord, the everlasting God, is a rock keep your mind on God's word you pray Philippians 4 6 and 7 I think Metanoia is teaching through Philippians be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your request known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and that idea for guarding your hearts and minds is kind of like a, a military garrison the, the word of God says that God will place a garrison of protection around your heart and your mind as you pray when you are anxious do you pray when you're anxious that's what God has provided for you we read God's word we pray and we gather we're commanded in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 not to forsake our assembling together but to come together to encourage one another and all the more as the day is drawing near as the days are growing evil We're commanded to gather. Don't miss that. We're commanded to gather for our encouragement. The way God has designed the body of Christ with all of its diversity is that as we come together and as we use the gifts that we have been given, together we grow into maturity. So if you're not gathering together with the people of God, you're not going to grow into maturity because this is how God has designed his people to function. Stay close to his word, pray, gather together with his people. I'm going to try to finish this out. Again, Isaiah doesn't explain exactly what it means by waiting, but he does tell us the result. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Renewing is the idea of replacement. In other words, that sapped energy will be replaced by the limitless energy of God. That's what Paul prays for in Colossians chapter one, that we would be strengthened with his might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. That's something we should be praying for one another as a church. That we will be strengthened, not with our own strength, but with the strength of God, because that's what we need. And this is what Isaiah is saying here. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not go weary. They will walk and not faint. All of that comes because God does the strengthening. God gives the power. The question is, do you believe this? Our God, the one who sent forth his son as a babe in Bethlehem, the one who sacrificed his son as a lamb on Calvary, the one who raised up his son as Lord of glory. He is the God who sees, the God who is sovereign, the God who promises to supply all of our needs, including his strength. The question is, do you trust him for that? Will you wait on him for that? Even if the waiting grows long, will you trust him for the patience and endurance to wait longer knowing that according to his promise, he'll give you the strength that you need. Well, again, the Christian calls this a season of joy, not because of the holiday, not because of the time off, the gifts given and received by friends and family. We call this a season of joy because it underscores the truth that there is a God in heaven who sees us. There is a God in heaven who is sovereign over all of our lives. There is a God in heaven who will supply for every one of our needs, including his strength. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the reminder in your word, the reminder in your truth that you do see us. Not only do you see us, but you love us and you aim to care for us. You aim to provide for us. You aim to supply us the strength that we need so that we might have the joy that we ought to have. And knowing you. Father I pray for your people this morning. I pray for those who perhaps. Are struggling with the joy of the season. That you would increase their joy. As they remember who you are. That you would increase their joy. By giving them your strength. That you would do that for your glory. And for our good. And for those who do not know you that you would draw them to your side and let them know that there is a God in heaven who sees and who desires to save. We pray this in Christ's blessed name, Amen. amen.